Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. different things going on in our lives. And Christian Mucci, thank you so much for sharing your story uh, with us and what's going on in your spiritual journey, how the Lord's even using the prayer initiative and, and different things that are happening. And I talked to Christian between services and he told me somebody else came up to him and said, I've got an April 5th too. And some of you probably have things that you're praying about, praying for, and uh, God's using all that to do a work in us. And uh, we're, we're grateful for that. And just thinking about, you know, Easter's coming up and I'm going to find it here so I don't mess this up. But this isn't the verse I'm preaching on today, but is it okay if I read a resurrection verse to you? All right, here we go. Think about the song we just sang. Think about the video we just watched. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It is. Isn't that awesome? We've got the victory. We're going to talk about that next week as we do Easter. And uh, today's, you know, like Pastor Seth said, the beginning of Holy Week. And we talk about, you know, Jesus coming in and the palm branches being laid down. And then Good Friday being really a dark day. And then we celebrate the victory on Sunday. Uh, but we always have the victory, don't we? Amen. Yeah, we're excited about that and being able to be together. I want to share something with you today. Just a special thanks to Pastor Seth, our worship team, our tech team today. Uh, you probably don't know it. They did a great job of you know, leading us in worship and doing all those things. And I'm talking to you through a microphone right now. But our trailer was stolen this past week. It had all of our AV equipment in it. And uh, it's not the first time it's happened to us as a church, although we don't consider ourselves pros at figuring it out. And uh, so today's a bunch of borrowed equipment and all kinds of different things happening here today. But the Lord wants us together. And uh, he wants us to be proclaiming his name, and uh, that's going to spur somebody on. I don't know what's going to happen, but here's been my experience as a pastor uh, over the last 11, 12 years here at Southbridge, is that when God's at work doing something, Satan oftentimes comes against it. And we've been praying. We've been praying for revival in our own hearts. We've been praying for our city. We've been praying for a future facility. We've been praying for all kinds of stuff to happen as a church. And uh, I believe God's at work amongst us and preparing us for some things that are going to happen, and uh, Satan doesn't like that. And so we're going to open up the Word this morning. We're going to finish up uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, Lord willing, together. And just to give you a heads up on what's happening, too, next week for Easter, I'm going to, I'm going to preach a, just a really a gospel message on the resurrection of Jesus. Share the gospel. Bring your friends who don't know Jesus. Uh, love, love for them to come and come to know Jesus as Savior. And the week after that, we're going to start a series in Hosea. And it uh, talks about God's unfailing love and His pursuit of us. And I know Satan doesn't want us to hear that. And so let's pray. That, that God would just come and his presence would be felt and known in these moments when we open up his word, regardless of microphones and whatever could happen during this service today, God's got us here for a reason. And it might not be the same reason it was for the first service, so let's just pray. Father, we come before you, and uh, we ask in this moment that you would bind Satan from this place. And there are things happening. There are people in this room that are fighting temptations and, and losing the battle to sin. And God, I pray that you'd make today a day of victory where things trans change and transform for them. There are people who don't know you. I pray that today would be an overwhelming sense of conviction and draw to you and the attractiveness of your love and your spirit would just come and call them to you. And Father, I pray for those of us that are kind of in, in this neutral, like this lukewarm spot. You say you want to spit us out of your mouth. I pray we wouldn't stay there, that we'd either turn our backs and walk away from you and know clearly where we stand or that we'd run to you like the prodigal son coming to his father. And Father, I pray through my words this morning, I don't know which words you want to say, but I pray that you'd anoint these lips and that you'd speak your truth beyond what I would know, beyond my wisdom or discernment or insights into the passages, that by your spirit you'd have a conversation with people's hearts, even if it's not the words that I'm saying. 
And you do a work of transformation, making believers more like your son Jesus and making non-believers drawn to you and confronting sin and encouraging souls. And God, I pray that you'd bind us together even more as a family as a result of today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you got your Bibles, you go and turn there. I also want to tell you just a thank you. Uh, last week I was in Panama with some of our missionaries for Hearts Cry Children's Ministry. Matt and Misty Hedspeth, some of you, if you were here from the very early days of our church, you might know them. And God called them out to go to Panama. And just as they've taken, and it's kind of how face steps go. Like it's like a little face step. They went there to adopt a child because they couldn't have children. And they decided they had to be a resident to be there. And then they saw that there were problems that, they, that God had given them some special gifts to do. And they took the next phase step. Anyways, 10 years later, they're opening the first ever special needs uh, orphanage in Panama. And that happened this past weekend. And so we praise God for that. And they said their words to you as a church. So I was so proud to be your pastor while I was there, just to let you know. And uh, the stuff I did, it, it was in comparison to what y'all have done. Those of you who have gone on trips there and prayed for them and given to them. I, I texted one of our elders who went there a couple weeks before and he was helping build a portico above the front of the, the place, like manly work. I was putting stickers up in the place where the kids were going to sleep. I was like, this is what I do and that's what you do. And so, but I was so proud to be there to represent you. And, and Southridge, they said, literally has built this building from power washing, you know, yeah, for sure. Praise the Lord. You know, power washing shingles, building windows, porticos, all that stuff, and, and the money that you've given and the prayers that you've prayed. And so that in their words, they said, thank you, Southbridge, for connecting children to Jesus for life change. So not just in our bridge kids, we want to minister to those kids, but you're impacting people around the world today as we're here together. And so I'm proud of you, and I was thankful to be uh, your pastor on that day and to be able to be there at that place. And uh, the, the night before, uh, I was just thinking about in light of today's message, the night before... Uh, that we were, we were leaving. My wife goes to bed pretty early. It was 1 o'clock in the morning. I hadn't finished packing, so I was still awake. So I just keep going until it's done. So I had to pack my stuff. And I got this email that came through that some of you may remember that this was coming. It was from Ancestry.com. And it said, your results are in. And so they came. I'm at this crossroads. Just to give you a little context for those of you who weren't here back when we were preaching 1 Peter chapter 2. I had told our church that for Christmas, my wife had given me an ancestry.com kit, you know, spit in the kit, tells you all the secrets of your life. And so I, I got this thing. And the reason why that was relevant was because I've always been told in my family that I'm Native American. And so that kind of explains some of the dark skin and dark hair and some of those types of things. But, and, then, and then I told the church, I said, every time I fly, I always get randomly selected, always the same guy, randomly selected through the TSA. And so my wife makes fun of me about that. And then we go to places. It can be, you know, Italy or Greece or South America, Mexico. And everywhere we go, my wife's like, you look kind of like these people. Like, these might be your people. We don't know who your people are. And when I went to college, they have the, you know, on the financial aid form, it says, you know, Asian, African-American, white, Native American. I checked Native American. They gave me scholarship money for checking the box. Don't do it just because you checked the box. They gave you money. But I did. And all my friends made fun of me. And so I'm like, I am really native. I've been told these stories. And so we did the thing. And I got this results. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. And I'm debating in my head, do I wait until my wife gets up and we have this moment of truth together because this is going to be like vindication for my life? <laughs> or have I been deceived all these years? I'm going to eat some humble pie in a moment. So I didn't want to eat humble pie with my wife. I decided I'd open the email. So 1 o'clock in the morning, I open the email up and I will share the results with you. But first, what percentage of American Indian do you think that I am? Guess? Any guesses? Zero percent. That is actually correct. Now, this is what it said. Sorry, Mom. That's what happened. 64% from Great Britain, 10% Scandinavia, basically a Viking, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, 9%. You go through this thing, and basically what it says is you're really white, dude. 
And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, did you, like, not even go to Facebook? You just looked at my spit? Like, this can't be right. And so I tell my wife the next morning. She's cracking up, making fun of me, laughing. Here's the ironic part. So we go to South America, and she's like, and then we were with this one guy that was like our driver. He works for Hearts Cry Ministries, and we looked a lot alike. And she's like, these are like your people. I'm like, these are not, I'm like, I'm a Viking. What are you talking about? These are not my people. We come through TSA. If you know my wife, she's pretty fair-skinned. She never gets tagged by TSA. Guess who gets tagged by TSA coming back from South America with Cubans and people coming to America, people from Panama. And I'm, I'm walking through. I'm like, these might be my people. And my wife gets tagged by the TSA and pulled aside. She's like offended through this thing. I'm like, you should be from Great Britain. What are you going to do? And then mess with me. As I was thinking about it, thinking about what we've gone through in First Peter, what if you were going to get your... Your ancestry DNA from your spiritual DNA, for those of you, just those of you, I'm not talking to the whole, everybody that's here today, I know everybody here has not placed their faith in Jesus. I'm not asking if you believe in Jesus, I'm not asking if you think that he died 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead, I'm not even asking that, but if you've surrendered your life to him, he's your Lord, you know him. First Peter's told us the results, the results are in, and I'll share them with you by way of review in this slide today. You're born again, 100%, that is your DNA, you're born again, you've been given a living hope. First Peter's told us. You're a royal priesthood. Remember we talked about that? First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I'm not just making this stuff up. You can look it up yourself. You're a priest. Do you know what a priest is? A priest is your God's representative to the people, and you're the people's representative to God. You're a bridge builder connecting people to Jesus for life change. That is your DNA. You're a chosen race. God selected you. He picked you out of the group to be his. A holy, not just a person, a holy nation. So not only... Does when, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, does God choose to see you through the washed blood of Jesus, no matter what sins you've done, past, present, future, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed that from you in the depths of the ocean, never to be brought up again, but not just as an individual, with all the other brothers and sisters around the globe, you're a holy nation. What else, what else was it? Uh, his people. Yeah, once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. But that last one's the one we talked a lot about going through this book. You're a foreigner. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says you're the, his chosen elect exiles. This place is not your home. The overarching theme of Peter, we called our series, Not Home Yet. This place where we live is not your home. Do you know what that means? You're not supposed to look like these people in this world. You don't have the same values. When you come with other believers, you should go, these are, they might be different. These are my people. And then the question is, though, if this isn't our home, our home is actually a place we've never been to. It's in heaven. And we await the crowns and the rewards that come there so we're not supposed to live like this place is our home, then how do we live? And that's what First Peter has been all about. And so today's message, as we wrap up, we come to chapter 5, Lord willing, we're going to cover all 14 verses of chapter 5 today. I've titled the message, Remaining Faithful Through the Fire. And so some of you are going through the fire. Remember what's happening here for these believers that Peter's writing to. They're suffering Christians. They're under persecution some people think when you talk about fire, which is a theme through First Peter, I'm going to read you a couple of verses in just a moment, that what's being talked about, historical background, is that Nero lit Rome by burning Christians alive. But when you read First Peter, I think it's a lot less dramatic than that. Let me remind you of this verse. In First Peter chapter 1, and verses 6 and 7, it says this, In this you rejoice. Oh, really? Because look at what I'm about to read. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, so any suffering is necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the week that we talked about that verse, I talked to you about a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so God tests our faith through trials, various trials, it said, though. That's a pretty gent. He's not just talking about Christians being burned alive. And you read through Peter, and you know what he talks about? Slander. Ever been slandered? Talks about being maligned, made fun of because of your faith, because you don't party like everybody else does. You're not into the debauchery. You're getting mocked because you're a little different. But you should be different. This isn't your place. Some beaten, so it gets a little bit more dramatic as he goes through some of these things. But it's it's basically you lose a job because you take a stand for your faith. You you get mocked. You don't get invited to certain things. It's it's that kind of thing. The various trials. And Jesus told us in this world you will have trouble. So when we talk about the fire, we're talking about all kinds of trouble. Anybody here got trouble? Cancer diagnosis, that's not, because, that's not because necessarily somebody's sin. You just live in a broken place. Sometimes there's trouble in your life because of your own sin. You're reaping what you've sowed. Sin always affects other people. And so sometimes it's because of sin of other people. You've caught in shrapnel. You've gotten collateral damage, the ripple effects of somebody else's decision. You've been hurt. And then sometimes stuff just happens. Babies get miscarried. Cancer happens. Some of you are going through the fire in various ways, fighting temptations, discouragement, discontentment. Anybody, everybody here just loves their job, I'm sure. Love your marital status, love the marriage that you're in, love the, anybody, discontentment, the various trials. And then last week, Pastor Horner came, and he, the passage right before the one that we're reading today in chapter 4, he said in verse 12, it says this, Beloved, talking about believers, do not be surprised. Jesus promised in this world you'll have trouble. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. For what reason? To test you. As though something strange, that's not strange, no, something strange is not happening to you. That's part of being a foreigner in this place. And so the question is, how do you remain faithful? And today in our text, when we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to see three necessities, three things that are required to remain faithful through the fire. And the first one, I'm going to be honest with you, when I first, I couldn't figure out how does this even go together? And so look at the first one with me in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. So, we'll come back to that word. It actually ties us to verse 17 in chapter 4. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. It's the good and the bad. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. How do you shepherd the flock of God? Exercising oversight. And then he goes through this, not this, but this, not this, but this. And he talks about the motives of an elder. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the first thing he talks about here is leadership, which sounds a little bit funny, because if you were here for chapter 4, it was all about persecution. It was all about suffering. It was all about going through the fire. And then the very first word in chapter 5 and verse 1, the word so, and so you can go look at that, connects us back to what he just said in verse 17 of chapter 4. If you've got your own copy of the Bible, you go back to chapter 7, verse 17 in chapter 4, you see that it says there that you're, the judgment's coming, and God starts with the house of God. And you know how this connects to these leaders here? Because I read this at first and I'm going, you weren't talking about like how to run a church, Peter. You're talking about judgment. You weren't talking about like, you know, this is how leaders should live. Let me tell you all the leadership did. Peter's 21 laws, irrefutable laws of leaders. He's not doing that. He's talking about suffering. So he's just said judgment, verse 17. And what he's saying here is this, and here's a leadership principle for you in biblical truth is that leaders go first. When God's coming to judge the church, he's starting with the leaders. And so 
that I realized when I preach that and start talking about it, and we unpack verses 1 through 4, I'm talking to a pretty small audience at our church. I'm talking to the other pastors. I'm talking to the elders. I'm talking to people in our congregation that at some point God's going to raise up to be elders in our church. But that's not a large part of our audience. And so as a, as a pastor and thinking as a shepherd, why, why do you need to know this? And here's why. Because you need godly leaders. You're going to remain faithful through the fire. Peter realizes that leaders set the tone. How they respond when they go through fire in their own lives can encourage or discourage the whole body. Also, I know that we live in a very transient area. And the reality is, the faces I look at right now in this moment, five years from now, some of you are going to live in D.C. Some of you are going to live in Portland. Some of you are going to live in Maryland. You're not going to be here. You're going to look for another church. And I hope that you don't just look for a church that has sound teaching. And I hope you don't just look for a church that has a good website and you like the music. But you look for a church that has the leaders that we're going to talk about from this passage of Scripture. My Also, my hope is this. As a leader in this church, that as a body, we would... You'd call us to this. And so you hear the word and go, hey, that stuff you were talking about, I don't think that's happening in your life right now, Scott. And as we live together, walking through our faith journey, we'd see this. And so the first necessity is this. You want to remain faithful through the fire requires godly leadership because leaders set the tone. And so Peter knows that. And look at what he says. I love what he says here. He says, I exhort the elders among you. And he could have said as an apostle. If he just said as an apostle, it'd have been, I've got authority over you, elders. Let me tell you authoritatively what you're supposed to do. He could have said as a, a spectator, I've been watching your ministry and I've got a few critiques. I get those emails every once in a while, just so you know. That's not what Peter does here. He's not saying ahead of you, not saying behind you. He's saying a fellow elder. I'm coming alongside of you. I know what it's like. And I love that from Peter. Do you know why? Because in the Bible, Peter talks about how he blows it as an elder, as a leader. And so you look in the, 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 the New Testament and you read the Gospels, if there, it's like, you know, have you ever heard this for like sporting events, big-time players make big-time plays and big-time games with the lights shine the brightest, the stars show up? Yeah, at the brightest moment in history, Peter blows it. It's the biggest moment in all of human history, not just his life. He, Jesus is going to the cross. He said, if everybody else denies you, Superman chest, I got this. He didn't read the verse in the Old Testament. Pride goes before the fall. You're about to fall, and it's going to be hard, Peter. And three times he denies Jesus. But then you know what happens? One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is John chapter 21. John chapter 21, three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He's restoring him. It, it seems like an interrogation. It, it seems like he doesn't really believe. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Peter, do you love me? It's not like that. He knows the answers. He knows all things. It's the resurrected Christ. They run at each other on the beach. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the resurrected Jesus on the beach? He's on the shore. He starts restoring Peter. It's grace that's happening. Three times he denied. Three times he restores him. Amen. But do you know what he says to him? Every time Peter, it says it grieved his heart. He says, you know all things. You know that I love you. Yes, I love you. But do you know what Jesus said to him? He said back to him, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter needed a second chance. Anybody here need a second chance today? Amen. We're all living on a second chance if you know God's grace. Everybody needs a second chance. He's an elder who knew a second chance, and that was what God used to prepare him to be a shepherd. And so Peter's saying, as a guy who's experienced grace, I've had an encounter. I you know what? He didn't witness all the sufferings of Christ because he abandoned Christ. But he witnessed he witnessed when people started to disagree with his teaching. He witnessed when people started to come against him. He witnessed when Jesus was falsely accused. He, he, seen, he says, I've had an encounter with the living Christ. I come to you as a fellow elder, verse 1. And so elders, here's what you need to know about them. One, they need to have an, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, and that shouldn't be one time in their life. 
That should be regularly occurring in their lives. Because here's why. Did you see in verse 4 what he said the key was? You'll be an example. Let me give you another way to phrase today's point, the first point. You need leaders that actually live the message. What he's saying here is, I'm against hypocrisy. So don't just preach on repentance. You're going to go through life and you're going to blow it. You need, the body needs to see you repent. Don't just talk about taking steps of faith. You need to take steps of faith. So leaders lead by example. He says here, what do they do? What do they do? He doesn't talk about like teaching. He doesn't talk about things we see in other places in the Bible. He says, shepherd the flock. How? By giving oversight. Here's the reality. We know other places in the Bible, the pressure that there is on being a leader. There's this verse in Hebrews chapter 13. If you only quoted the first half, it'd be awesome. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says this, submit to your leaders. As a leader, you're like, yeah, just listen to what I say. I'm always right. The second part of the verse is really scary. You know the second part of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says? For they will give an account. So there's some spiritual accountability for every pastor, every elder that they're going to have as they stand before God for your spiritual condition. And so the oversight that they're giving is in their best interest to guide you into the truth, to guide you to the place where you're taking steps of faith, where you're living without faith and possible to please God, where you're living on the edge of faith. Not comfort, not safety, not security. And so so what does that look like? Well, first, you've got to live it out. And what we get here is examples. And as I've studied more and more, because it's really relevant to my own life, what does it look like to be a good pastor and shepherd? One of the things I've realized is this. It's not just about teaching. It's not just about decisions you make for the church as a whole. One of the most important things any elder, any pastor does is they're an example to the body of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so as I was studying this passage this week, God kept laying on my heart the story from the Old Testament that some of you might be familiar with. If not, I recommend you go read it on your own. It's, it's an incredible story. It's in Daniel chapter 3. What happens in Daniel chapter 3 is there's these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're foreigners in a land. They're elect exiles. And what's happened is the culture is saying to them, you need to bow down and worship this golden statue. And so the king actually makes a command, an edict, that if you, if you don't bow down and worship the statue every time this trumpet plays... Then we're going to kill you. We're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Do you remember from a few weeks ago the message where I said, follow your fear, find your Lord? Well, if you want an illustration of these guys finding their Lord, knowing their Lord, you read this passage in Daniel chapter 3. What happens is apparently everybody's bowing down and worshiping this statue. Let me tell you, I don't know all their motives, but I'm pretty confident they didn't all simultaneously go, that statue's amazing. I think I'm going to bow down and worship. They were afraid of getting burned in this fiery furnace and getting killed. Follow your fear, find your Lord. But word got out, there were these three guys, they were leaders. I don't know if you've read Daniel chapter 3, but you start reading the details. In Daniel chapter 3, they were overseers of different parts of Babylon. They weren't from Babylon, they were foreigners there, but God raised them up to lead. And then word gets out, they're not bowing down. And apparently everybody else is bowing down. So the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, calls them before himself. And the way the conversation goes, you get the tone where it's like, hey, I've heard this stuff. Uh, we can rectify this real easy. We heard that you're not bowing down when we play the trumpet. In a minute, I'm going to play the trumpet. All you need to do is bow down, and we're all good. But if you don't, we're going to kill you. And you know what the guys say? You don't need to play the trumpet. We ain't bowing down. And we serve a God that can deliver us, and will deliver us at some point. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your, your God's. So I'll read it to you. you know, I'm not just making this up. In Daniel chapter 3 and verses 16 through 18, I think we have the verse put on the screen. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to talk about this anymore. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able, amen, 
to deliver us from the burning fiery, literally a fiery trial, fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King, at some point. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. What do you think that did to the rest of the people? Think that emboldened them? Think that encouraged them? And it's interesting what you get next in 1 Peter chapter 5, talking to these leaders, telling them to be an example, telling them to live out their faith before the flock. Is not, here's how you do it, here's how you take steps of faith, and these are the things you should teach. Instead, what Peter gets to is their motives. Not what they do, but why they do it, and motives matter. Here's the problem with knowing motives. You can't know them without asking a lot of questions. We tend to be people that, and I do it too, we jump to knowing people's motives. We think we know their motives. We don't know their motives unless you're in a relationship with them, which, by the way, also, that's one of the problems with our culture, with our, our celebrity Christian culture, where you might not ever, ever even talk to your pastor, or you might never know some of the elders in the church. See, this is where you've got to be living life together so that you see people when they blow it, and you see people, when, and when there's a glorious moment, do they try to take all the credit? They give them the credit to God. Like, how are they living? Not just preaching about repentance, are they repenting? Not just preaching about giving, are they giving? Not just preaching about sharing the gospel? Have you seen them share their faith, not from the stage, but one-on-one? And how do you know those motives? Or how do you know if they're living it out? And so here you've got these statements, and they go like this, not but, not but, not but, not like this, that's the bad example, but like this. There's three of them. And the first one I'm going to summarize by saying, they serve as an elder, as a pastor, with passion. They do it with passion because they want to. There's a desire in them. The first qualification of an elder in 1 Timothy is if anyone desires this office, it's a noble task. And so he says here in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not... And here's where the passion comes from, not under compulsion, not because you have to, but willingly, as God would have you. So why would someone serve under compulsion? Let me tell you, there can be a lot of social pressures. There can be a desire for power. There can be a desire for recognition. There can be uh, just, you know, that's what good people, I remember the college I went to was a Christian college, and uh, just to let you know kind of the culture there, this was never written down, this is my observation of the place was that if you were a good guy, you loved Jesus, you wanted to read the Bible on your own, not because like somebody told you, you should go read your Bible, and you actually talked about Jesus with other people because it was in your heart, like you loved Jesus, that you were supposed to go into ministry. That's the way they acted. Do you know the problem with that? Some of the guys at that school, and they did it, not all of them went into ministry, but some of the guys at school, they were called to go to the business field and bring Jesus as a light onto the New York Stock Change floor. Some of them were supposed to be in real estate. Some of them God was calling into the educational field. Some of them God was calling into the legal field. Some of them God was calling to be software designers. Some of them engineers. And so if they all went into ministry, they were disobeying this. Now, a lot of times as Christians, we act like, well, if you're, if you're really committed, then you go do that. No, that's disobedient to the Bible. You've got to have a desire for this, a passion for this, not because you've been pressured into it, not because you, the congregation nominated you to be an elder. You don't want to be an elder? Don't be an elder. Not under compulsion, but willingly, with passion, also generously. Not just with passion, but with generosity. And get that from the next phrase that's in this passage. It says here, not for shameful gain, personal gain, but eagerly. And so you're doing it, you're, you're eager to serve. And so we see all throughout the Bible that, that, like, as a pastor, you know, sometimes people talk about pastors like they're CEOs. They should be the chief servant of the congregation. As we talk about in this passage, some, some people do it for money. Uh, some people will become a pastor for the, the glory of it. You know, praise. People will tell you something. I'll tell you the own, my own personal temptation. Every sermon I prepare. If 
you preach, if you say this joke or you do this thing, then maybe after the service, somebody will say, good job, pastor. Or there's the way that God wants me to do it. Just when I said, what does this verse say? And what do these people need, not necessarily want, what do they need to hear today? And that might be different today. I could preach this same passage three weeks from now, and you'd need to hear something different, so we'd emphasize something different. We'd talk about something different. But that's serving the body. And I've done both, just so you know. Not for shameful gain, things of your own personal benefit, but to eagerly, you're trying to help the body as a servant, not... The next one, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's with gentleness. You don't lead to try and control people. You're being an example, and it's kind of like the husband-wife relationship. And a lot of times we talk about wives submit to your husbands, and husbands lead your wives. You know how husbands are supposed to lead their wives? Like Christ loved the church. He died for the church. Who's willing to give up your own life, not just telling everybody, hey, you should serve, and not willing to serve. There's one guy, I read a blog this week that said, leaders pick up trash. You get as low as you need to get to be an example to the body and serve the body. That, those are the kind of leaders you look for. And then he tells us why you're supposed to do it. He told us all these reasons. Not, don't do it this way, do it this way. Don't do it this These shouldn't be your motives. What should be your motive? Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a crown for those who lead well. Leaders go first. And those who do it like Jesus, there's a special crown for them. Do you know what he's saying here? To those that aren't leaders... Your leaders should live like this place is not their home. Your motivation is an eternal reward. That you're going to receive a crown in heaven if you lead well. And then he goes and starts addressing the whole body. Look at verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And so now you look at it and you might go, oh, that's not talking about an office in the church. It's talking about older people. Well, no, he's in the context here. He's been talking about elders. Elders and pastors and bishops are synonymous words in the Bible. They all mean the same thing. The elders... The young people should submit to them. I don't know for sure. I read one person that said the reason why this is probably said is because the young people are the ones that probably have the biggest hard time with actually submitting to their elders. And I haven't thought about like my own 11, 12 years here. Who's had the hardest time? Is it the older people? Is it the younger people? But the idea being the older people should be more spiritually mature and they realize the benefit for the whole body of submitting to their spiritual leaders. But the young people need to be reminded of this. How do we do this? Look at the next part of the verse. Clothe yourselves, all of you, leaders, and followers with humility toward one another. Why? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now to all of us, not just to the leaders, the second necessity is this. You're going to remain faithful through the fire requires humility. To remain faithful through the fire requires humility. What is humility? It's getting low. The best definition I've seen of it is in the Bible. It's in Philippians chapter 2. It talks about being like Jesus, that we should have the same attitudes as Jesus. That's in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. And the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2, it talks about doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition is for your own gain. So you're living life for your benefit. You're thinking about yourself. Or the American dream could be a paraphrase of vain conceit. It's empty glory. It's going after something that's not going to deliver the satisfaction you think it's going to deliver, and it's all about you. So that's the opposite of humility. Some people talk about the opposite of humility as pride. Yeah, that's what pride is, is living life for yourself. A lot of times when we think about pride, uh, we think about that pride is the arrogant, cocky person. That's very well, most likely true most of the time, but it's really anybody who's thinking about themselves and making their decisions. And so just think about this for a second. So then you're saying that pride might be the person that's really into self-improvement, 
that might just be pride. Uh, the person that is always telling self-deprecating jokes, they're thinking a lot about themselves, might just be pride there. Well, it seems like humility. We, we always talk about it's humility. Might be, what about the person that's very entitled? I deserve, I should, I should, a lot of eyes there. Why me? Why didn't you? Might, that might just be pride. Well, let me tell you something. That's a scary place to be. Because did, did you read? He quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. Peter should have known this before he did it himself. He blew it. Now he's telling us, I want better for you than what I experienced. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what does it mean to be humble? Well, verse 6 tells us, humble yourselves, therefore, putting yourselves voluntarily under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. He will Stop lifting yourself up and let God lift you up. But if you live with your pride, let me tell you something, that's the worst sin you can commit. Think about that. What about murder? What about kidnapping? Human trafficking? What about rape? You hurt other people. Pride's the worst. Think that, let me ask you this question. You think about it for just a moment. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen in your life? Each one of you may think of different things. may have to do with kids. may have to do with different stuff. I was thinking about that this week. I was reminded of a phrase. I don't know how old it is. It just kind of dates me to even though that I know it. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Do you remember the phrase, that's the worst? No? Okay. <laughs> when I, I remember there was a time when people would say about basically everything. Like it's humid outside and, you know, you've got frizzy hair. And then your friend goes, that is the worst. You know, you had a cell phone battery died or pager battery died 20 years ago. Remember pagers? <laughs> I was such a nerd in high school, I put it on my shoe. Anyway, pager, didn't have, I don't think I had batteries. I didn't have a number. I couldn't pay the bill, so whatever. Pager battery died. That's the worst. Let me put it in context here. In First Peter, what's happening to these Christians, what Nero's doing, is he's putting animal skins on Christians and setting them out on the streets and then sends wild dogs after them to devour them. Your pager battery dying? That ain't the worst. What is the worst? What's the worst thing that could happen? Let me propose that it's what this passage says. That God opposes, that God would be opposed to you? Let's think about that for a second. You'd have an ever-present enemy. You can't get in a fish's belly and run from him. Edward Snowden, Siberia, nope, not going to work. Osama bin Laden in some some cave in the ground in the Middle East, nope, he's there. Ever-present. All-knowing. God's all-knowing. And so there's no, hey, God, what I really meant was, let me, re- let me put a little spin on this. <laughs> he knows what you meant. Your pride. But here's the worst one. He's all-powerful. So you've got an omnipotent God that could crush you at any moment. That's all-knowing, omniscient, ever-present, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnipresent, all-knowing enemy. It doesn't get any worse than that. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, what we see in this passage is conditional grace. There's unconditional grace. That's what you receive at the cross. You're saved from the fires of hell. What ends up happening at the cross, you're justified. That's justifying grace. Where God sees you because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus did the performance. Jesus did the work at the cross for your sins when he took his Father's wrath for you. And that is unconditional grace. You did nothing to deserve that. But we see, we see there's another kind of grace in the Bible. Not just justifying grace. There's a grace that only gets given to humble people. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
you don't, you don't get that grace. So here's the, here's the scary part. He humbles you, Christian. You know how he oftentimes does that? Various trials. The fiery furnace. Here's a biblical principle for you to keep in mind, and just to know, and it's true in every sermon, that the cross comes before the crown. Remember Satan's temptation to Jesus? I'll give all this kingdom, bow down and worship me, no cross necessary, you can have the glory. By the way, that's oftentimes the bait that he gives us. No pain, no suffering, I'll give you everything you've ever wanted, just follow me. The cross comes before the crown. God uses pain oftentimes to bring us to the place where we were at under his hand. Last week, I told you I was in Panama and um, had a, and a really cool, somebody asked me what was the highlight of the experience for you, and it was one of those like just God moments where God brought me in contact with a couple I wasn't planning on seeing, didn't know they'd be there, and uh, what happened is we were at the, the grand opening for Casa Providencia, which is the special needs ministry uh, that I mentioned, the orphanage that was getting opened up, and I'm coming in, I'm finding a seat, and I go to sit down, and some people sit down behind me, and I was racial profiling, I'll just let you know, they look like they're from Great Britain, so like, these are my people. I was like, hi. And they said back in English, hi. I'm like, yes, you're from America. And then I realized that I knew who they were, but I had never met them before. You ever had that as a Christian before? You're praying for somebody and you hadn't met them, but then you meet them and you're like, you're the person I've been praying for. And they were missionaries in Panama, but about two and a half hours away from Matt and Misty. And Matt and Misty have had a nationwide ministry there. It's, it's amazing to go and see what God's doing there through them. But this, this couple came from two and a half hours away to be there. Their names are Graham and Nicole. They're also missionaries there. And the reason why I knew them was because I had gotten a text message from somebody in our church that was really close friends with them. About nine months earlier, they had a two-year-old daughter that died in a tragic accident. And so this friend from our church text messaged me and said, hey, will you pray for my friend Graham and his wife Nicole? They just lost their daughter. Terrible tragedy. He shared me some of the details of what happened. And so I had been praying for them. And so as soon as I saw them, I'm like, oh, like, I know, I know what's been going on. We didn't talk about it in that moment. The ceremony happens, and all, it was awesome, all the stuff that happened. And then after that was all done, we, we came together, and we started talking. And Shannon and I were going to pray for them, pray with them, and we did. And then Graham started sharing the story of what had happened. And he said, there were two kids that were playing with some bar. They've got the kids, and a couple of their kids were there, even with them when we were talking about this. And he said, and these two little girls asked if they'd come to church with us. Now, they're missionaries. So missionaries, they, that's like you have to say yes. Like, yes, I mean, you can go to church with me. And so he said he wouldn't have normally even been gone in the morning, but he went up in the mountains to pick up these two little girls so they could come and hear the gospel. And when he came back, he was the one that was driving the car that ran over his two-year-old daughter. And he said to me, it's so cliche, right? Like we're a missionary. Go and get these other kids so they can hear the gospel and my own child. And really, it's the gospel. Just so you know, that's what your father has done for you. You were the kids in the mountains, by the way. He came to get you. You were lost. And he wanted you to know that he wanted a relationship with you, and he let his, his own child die. So that could happen. And so we're talking to them, and a pain, unimaginable pain. And it's not like it's all wrapped up with a bow, just so you know, either. And they came off the field for a while. They came back. They, they, you know, he said to me, I said, I don't want death to have the victory. Death doesn't have the victory for us as Christians. And his wife said something that, she didn't know what we were preaching, by the way. She didn't know we were in 1 Peter. She didn't know any of this stuff. You know what she said to me? Nicole said, it's made it so real that this place, and she wasn't talking about Panama. She wasn't talking about America. She was talking about this world. She said, this place is not our home. And see, they realized, and they didn't say these words, they realized their home is where their child is now at, with our Heavenly Father. Our home is in heaven, but the pain is real here. But you know what else? The cross comes before the crown. 
In this world, you will have trouble. There is pain. But you know what happens? God meets us in the pain. You see this idea of the cross before the crown continually through the Bible. And so you go, you're like, look at Moses' life. Look at Moses. What happened with Moses? Before you're going to lead my people, which that was its own fiery trial, before you're going to lead my people, you're going to spend 40 years on the backside of the desert with some sheep. And then I'm going to call you, and then that's going to be tough. Before I split the sea and you walk right through it, Moses, which we sang about today. Joseph, Joseph, yeah, I'm gonna, you didn't do anything wrong, and we're going to put you in prison to prepare you. Before we use you to save a starving nation, cross before your crown. Moses, cross before your crown. Job, cross before your crown. You just go start looking at the lives of these people. We talked about these the guys in Daniel chapter 3. You know what happens in that situation? I didn't tell the whole story. You should read it on your own. Just don't bank on me just telling you stories. Daniel chapter 3, you go and read that passage of Scripture, and these three guys, they're bold for their faith. The king does not say, I admire you taking a stand. And you know what? We're really tolerant around here. And so you believe what you believe, and we believe what we believe, and we disagree. It's all cool. No, you know what he says? He says, crank up the furnace seven times hotter than we've ever had it before. Bind these guys, take them up there. When they bind the guys and take them up there, the guards die when they open up the door. They throw these three guys into the fiery furnace, and then read the story. The details matter. The king says, I see them walking around. They're unbound. Why are they unbound? Their clothes weren't burnt. Their hair was still good. They're unbound. What's God doing in that moment? You know what he's doing? He's stripping stuff away. I don't know those guys. I don't know what their pride level was, but I bet he was stripping it away. I read a, a separate story this week. What a guy, was in, he was in Europe serving in the parliament, and he wanted to take a stand for unborn babies because of things that were happening with abortion. And so as a Christian, he did that, got lots of press on it, lots of persecution for it, and he was talking about his courage in this interview, and he said, you know the one thing I lacked? Humility. I was very proud of my courage. What was he doing to those guys? I don't know. But you know what the king says? The pagan king, remember our vision, let our light so shine before men. They see the way we live our lives and they glorify God. With his own words, he says, there's a fourth person in there. You know who was in that furnace with them? It's Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus. Do you know why? Because Jesus meets us in the fire. And the king said, he looks like a son of the gods. It's a pagan terminology. That guy's different. These leaders, they went through the fire because they remained faithful. And you know what? They put themselves under the mighty hand of God when they said, I don't know if he's going to do it or not, but we're going to trust him. We're going to leave the results to him. How do we do this? How does this happen for us? Well, that's verse 7. It's the next verse. Do you know First Peter chapter 5, verse 7? Don't read it. Don't read it yet if you don't know it. You're caught. I already caught you. I remember when I was in seminary having this old sage seminary professor come walking into a class one time. It was a class of about 10 or 12 guys, and we were sitting there. And he says, y'all know 1 Peter 5, 7? I didn't have any idea what he was talking about, 1 Peter 5, 7. Like, I, I think I've read 1 Peter. What are you talking about? I mean, this is like graduate school for the Bible. I probably should know the verse. I'm feeling like I'm put on the spot. And he said, if you're ever going to minister to people, he didn't say a context. He didn't say if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to be a chaplain. He just said, if you're going to minister to, like, human beings, you need to know 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Then he said, if you're going to do a funeral, you need to know 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. If you're going to ever visit somebody in the hospital, you need to know 1 Peter 5, 7. And I'm like, what is 1 Peter 5, 7? So I leaned over to a friend. I'm like, do you know what is 1 Peter 5, 7? 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. I've quoted it a lot of times to us as a church. The problem is, it usually gets ripped out of context. The casting is not the, the command there. 
The command is verse 6. Did you read verse 6? Remember verse 6? To humble yourselves. How do you humble yourself but to cast your cares upon Jesus? You know what the word to cast means? It means to throw, which got me thinking of a yard game that I think is kind of a popular game right now called cornhole. You know cornhole? These bags? Got a little board over here if you didn't notice it already. Over there. Ooh, threw that one off. Over a little bit. So imagine with me for a minute. These are your, what does it say in the verse? We're not playing games here. We're, we're studying the Bible, just so you know. Well, I'm playing games. You're studying the Bible. So what does the verse say right there? Casting all of your what? Care. So your cares or your anxieties. Imagine these baggies are your cares or your anxieties. And which, what does it say in the verse? Which ones are you supposed to cast? So these are your cares and your anxieties. Cast them upon Jesus. I'm not very good at this. Don't let that ruin the illustration. Here. All? All of them? So that means all your past cares too, right? Because many people, the thing that keeps them up at night is stuff they've done in their past. So regrets, some of the biggest bad decisions you made, or things that have happened to you in your past. Sometimes abuse, sometimes betrayal, job loss, somebody wronged you, and you just keep going. So you're supposed to throw off. The words used also in, first, or in Luke chapter 19 and verse 35, and you can go look at the context for that. It's kind of neat in light of today. But they're throwing coat, cloaks on an animal. So you're tossing this thing. So you're supposed to take your cares. You're supposed to literally throw them upon Jesus. All your past care, all your present. Some of you have things today that you're thinking about, that you're caring about, you're anxious about. All the present stuff that's going on in your life with your work, with your family, with your health. All the fiery trials you go through. And future. Any of you like me live in the future? Anybody here ever had an argument with somebody you haven't had a conversation with yet? (laughs) All the people that laughed. Yes, that is true. There's always, with humor, there's always a little bit of truth, just so you know. You always win those arguments, don't you? (laughs) At least I do. That's pride. Cast the cares. Boom, really. That one really went to Jesus right there. It's probably because I was getting personal. That's probably what happened there. But we're not done taking the verse apart, so we go into the verse. Casting means to toss all past, present, future. But what is it we're casting again? The Bible said what? Cares, anxiety, some translations say. Do you know what that word means? That word can be used for a lot of different things. Discontentment is one of the ways that word can be used. So you cast all your discontentment on Jesus. Boom. Got that. So we know when he's getting personal with me because they're going in, right? Everybody here is content with their job, I'm sure. Everybody here is happy with how their marriage is going. Everybody here, I'm sure, is your finance. No dreams have been crushed. You cast all. That's to humble yourself. That's to put yourself under the mighty hand of God. But it doesn't just mean discontentment, it means despair. Anybody, you don't have to say it, depressed, discouraged, all suffering, all pain, all those are words that could be translated here, anxieties. The anxieties apply to basically various trials, the fiery trials. It's all the stuff that Jesus promised in this world, you will have trouble. But then the next part of that verse is Jesus says, I've overcome the world. You don't overcome your problems. I meet you in your problems. And so the cross does come before the crown. But you know what happens? What happens is Jesus meets you in the midst of the pain. What happened for those guys in that fiery furnace? Jesus met them there. You want an example of the cross coming before the crown? How about we go not to the guys in the fiery furnace, not to Moses, not to Joseph, not even to you, but to the cross. So what happened at the cross is that God took the worst sin that ever happened, the murder of his own son. And he used it for your greatest good, your salvation. So if God can do that at the cross, 
Think about what he can do with your fiery trial. He meets you in your pain and take the worst thing. What, what did you think of when I asked you the question, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What if that's what happens? What do you think it was for the guys with the fiery furnace? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, even in the worst situation that you could have imagined before we talked about the real worst thing that could happen. And God will meet you. He can do the best. God can take the worst and do the best because that's what He did at the cross. And He can do it in your situation. So the second thing is it requires our humility. Our humility is casting. It's when we cast our cares upon Him. We see it when we do what, like those guys in the fiery furnace did. We trust God, and we're going to let God take care of the results. Amen. I'm going to trust Him. I'm not, I don't need to stress out about this. I don't need to control this. I don't need to manipulate this. I don't need to pitch my case to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, about why you should see this. My boldness you should see well, even though you hate my God. No, I'm just going to do what I believe God wants me to be faithful through the fire and let Him handle the results, and the results might be the worst thing that could ever happen. But even in that, I trust Him. Because in that, He'll create the best thing. It's like Jesus, who was our example in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, not, he wasn't trusting Pilate, wasn't trusting Herod, entrusted himself to the Father. That's the second necessity. The third one's this, verses 8 and 9. We'll read the last one here. As remaining faithful through the fire requires realizing and resisting the enemy. So look at verses 8 and 9. Realizing you have an enemy, because many Bible-believing Christians deny the devil's real. When we read it, first of all, just the Bible says he's real. That's one thing. We'll talk about other ways we know that he's real after that. So you've got to realize that and then resist him. You've got to resist your enemy. That's verse 9. So they've got two in one here. It's a bonus. Double bonus, no extra charge. Here you go. Verse 8, realize. Look what he says. Be sober-minded. <laughs> really, Peter? How about practice what you preach? Remember that whole Garden of Gethsemane thing? You couldn't even pray for an hour? You're sleeping at the most important moment in history? And what he's saying is, as an elder, I want better for you than even what I've done in my own life. Be alert. Don't, because you want to know how you're going to fail in the fire? I've done it, is what he's saying. I've failed in the fire. And, and you need to be alert. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Watchful. Your adversary, you have one. He's real. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings, what you're going through, you're not alone. God, God has you in community with other believers. You're not the only one that's experienced whatever it is you're going through. I'm not saying everyone's experienced it, but you're not the only one. And what Satan wants to do is get you alone so he can pick you off, just so you know. Knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You might not see the people that are experiencing it. There's other people that have experienced it. It's your temptation. You're not the only one that's been faced with that temptation. You're not the only one that comes with a story like your story. You're not the only one that knows. You think you're the only one that Satan's getting you in isolation. You've got an enemy. He wants to pick you off. He wants to kill you, steal from you, destroy you. It says here he's a lion seeking whom he can devour. Be alert of him. Let me tell you something. Some of you don't believe just because the Bible says that you have an enemy like that. Let me ask you this. Is pornography real? Is abortion real? Is human trafficking real? Is murder real? Is rape real? What if there was a mastermind behind that that was the father of lies? Is the American dream something people actually waste their life pursuing their whole lives? Let me tell you something. Yes. And we've got the father of lies, the murderer, John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus talked about it. The Bible talks about the devil continually, repeatedly. What does he want to do? He wants to deceive you. How do you fight lies? You need to know the truth. That's why you should come to church even when it's snowing in the morning. <laughs> but it's not just so you can hear me talk about the truth. It's because we go through a passage like this. I promise you, I haven't told you everything that's in this passage. 
It should, it should whet your appetite that you want more. You want to go back to Daniel 3. You want to read Daniel 3. You want to know what, did he, what didn't he talk Why didn't he talk about this from 1 Peter chapter 5? You've got to be in the Word on your own. You've got to be with other Christians. One of the reasons why being a small group is good. Some people see stuff from a different perspective than you do, think things, hear things, and they bring that, and it, it reminds you of the truth so that when the lies come, you recognize them. One of the other things he does, he tries to overwhelm us with temptation. He tried to do it with Jesus himself and use the Bible, by the way. So you've got to know the truth well enough to know when the Bible's getting twisted. He wants to snatch the word from you. He doesn't. When you leave this room today, Satan's goal for you is you forget everything that gets talked about. He talks about that in Mark chapter 4, parable of the sower. And then Jesus later says, that's Satan. He comes along, he snatches the seed away so it can't take its root. You know why? Because it's the word that births faith. God wants you to live by faith. Satan wants to stop that. And he says here, he's a lion seeking to devour you. And so a lot of people think of the biblical imagery of lion is of Satan. It's not really. Up until this point in the Bible, the imagery is of Jesus. He's the lion of Judah. He is the lion and the lamb. And here, it's talking about him being the lion. Some people think historical backgrounds being referred to here of Christians being killed in the Colosseum, being devoured by lions. Biblically, what's happening here is he's probably, this lion is being portrayed as a cheap imitation of Jesus, which we know that Satan comes as an angel of light. It's probably what's happening here. C.S. Lewis has, in one of his books, an analogy of this. It's called The Last Battle, if you want to look at the book. And there's this evil character that finds this lion skin and puts it on a donkey. And you think about how ridiculous that would look. But Lewis says, in the right light at the right distance, it might look like a lion to someone who's never seen a lion. And you think about that for us. How many people in this church and around the world today are worshiping Satan? You say, well, no, not nobody here. Well, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Uh, they're talking about Jesus, but they're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. They're talking about an imitation Jesus, the Jesus that exists for your glory, a Jesus that his sole purpose in life is your happiness, a Jesus that he just wants to give you everything that you want, but you're just kind of, there's these like little barriers, or maybe he's not quite strong enough. Maybe he couldn't fix your stuff, but he's got eternity covered for you. How many people are worshiping that Jesus? That's Satan, by the way. Amen. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so the question is, do you know him? Do you know that, do you, have you seen the real lion? Would you know when the fate comes? Because you've been close. Remember that for the elders? I've witnessed, I've personal encounter with. Same true for the body. Have you, do you know him? Like you know, not like you know George Washington or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. I bet everybody here knows who I'm talking about when I say that. Some of you have passionate opinions about all those people. You bet you know, you know the office they held? You believe they existed? You believe they walked? I'm not talking about Jesus, do you believe he died for your sins? I'm not talking about do you believe that he walked this earth? I'm not talking about do you believe he was a good teacher? I'm asking do you know him? Amen. Like you know a coworker, like you know a spouse, like you know a friend, like you know a sibling, like you know a parent. Do you know him? That's how you know a fake, because you know the real one. So do you know him? The lion wants to devour you. He's got a plan for you, and do you know what the reality is? He can't devour you if you're a genuine believer and you really know Jesus, but he can make you ineffective, and that's his goal for you. He wants to stop you from having an impact for the kingdom of God. I read a story, some of you might have seen it a few weeks ago on ESPN. There was a triathlete in South Africa, and he was out riding his bike. I'd swim, run, ride their bike as a triathlete, and he's riding his bike in South Africa. He got pulled into some bushes. He thought he was being robbed. He offered his phone, his watch, and his bike. They didn't want it. They tried to cut his legs off. We don't know why. Still don't know why. It's a gruesome story. I won't share all the details with you. Last I saw and the last update I saw on the BBC was it said that he was, uh, looked like it was going to be okay. He was going to be able to run again, be able to compete again. But uh, with a chainsaw, they tried to cut his legs off. Let me tell you, that's what Satan wants to do to you as if you're a Christian. 
He wants to stop you from running the race. Now, if that means just getting you to Netflix binge all the time, it doesn't have to be as gruesome as cutting your legs off. If it means giving you the American dream, that's your pursuit, and you're going to try and use Jesus to get there, he's got you right where he wants you. But you know what happens to Peter? Peter got pulled aside one time by Jesus, and Jesus said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you, but I've prayed for you. Why Peter? Do you know why? Because he's going to make a dent in the kingdom of darkness and further the kingdom of light. So does Satan even care about you is a question. If it's in your DNA, you are born again, you're a foreigner, then you're, this is how you live. And do you know what the last verses in this book say? We're not going to spend much time on them, but it says this. Basically, God's going to make all things right. Let me read it to you. And after you have suffered, we're all going to suffer. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen? To him be the dominion, the power, the rule, the reign forever and ever. Amen? And then he gives some final greetings. Sylvanius, one of his friends. Nobody does this alone. Even Peter's got teammates. A faithful brother, as I regarded him. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She was at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. All these other elect exiles, i got to use a little code language here because of persecution, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, with the gospel of Mark, my son, spiritual son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Do this together. Live this out together. This is your DNA. This is how you remain faithful. You gotta have godly leaders, godly examples in your life. Encourage and discourage. Walk through life together with. Cast your, you humble yourself by casting your cares on him. Some of you here today need to cast your cares on Jesus. And that's your response to this message. And resist the devil. He wants to destroy you. If you're a genuine believer in Jesus, he can't, but he can make you ineffective. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you right now. I pray for my brothers. I think specifically right now. You burdened my heart right now. I didn't pray this first service, but there's somebody in this room who needs to know this. Satan's winning. And they're a Christian. And God, I pray that you'd, you'd give them victory. I pray that they would resist the devil. I pray that they would stand free. And I pray, God, that you'd work in their hearts in this moment right now. That whatever step of faith you're calling them to make, I don't know what it is. You speak to their heart. Will you have them do that in this moment? And Father, I pray for those in here that have burdens they need to cast upon you. And I just pray. And if you have a burden that you need to cast upon Jesus, I'm going to pray for you. Would you just stand? Would you just stand around this room? And I'll pray for you. And Father, I pray for the ladies that stood in the front here. I pray for people standing in the back and several people standing up. God, you know these burdens. You see this. You know what's going on in their hearts before they stood up. But the fact that they stood up, God, I pray it would be even a physical act of them starting to toss these burdens to you, to give these burdens to you. And you say in Matthew chapter 11, if we, if we are heavy burdened, if we are heavy laden, that you give us rest for our souls. You don't say you'll deliver us from circumstances, but you'll meet us in the fire. I pray for every person that's standing right now that you'd meet them in this moment whether it's discontentment or it's despair or it's something in the future or something from the past. God, I pray that I'd be able to give that to you and the load would become lighter as they put the weight on your back, as they put that on the cross. And Father, I pray that there'd be just people like flinging stuff to the cross right now in this moment. Just like I was tossing those bags for cornhole, they'd be throwing their, their worries, their cares, their discouragements, the despair, the regrets upon you and upon the cross and you'd be bringing new freedom, please be seated if you want to be seated now. And Father, I pray if there's anybody in here who doesn't know your son Jesus, doesn't truly know him, not that they don't believe facts about him, but doesn't know him as Savior, that right now will be the moment of salvation. What you do in the face step of that is just acknowledge your sin to him. You talk to him as personally, he knows every sin you've ever done. You can start listing every sin you've ever done, or you can just say to him, I confess my sin to you, and I want your son Jesus to be my Savior, and ask him to be Savior right now. 
you did that, I challenge you to be baptized next week. We're doing baptism. Mm -hmm. I pray that'll be a next step of faith for you. Father, thank you for meeting with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray.